Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Great to see you all. And if I don't know you, my name's Mike. I'm one of the ministers here. And I'll be uh, spend, spending some time now in that pa- amazing passage from God's Word. Some people think the if Romans is the Himalayas, chapter 8 is Everest, and verse 28 is the pinnacle, the snow-covered peak. So um, we need prayer. I feel like I need prayer when approaching something like that. What can you say about that passage? Um, William Carey was a pioneer missionary. He sailed from Britain to India in 1793 to begin a new mission. He risked everything he had. He never came back to this country. He risked everything he had to take the word of God to India. He wanted to translate the Bible into many different languages. And nearly 20 years later, he had sacrificed much. A child had died uh, through dysentery. His wife, as a result of a nervous breakdown following that, had also passed away. But they had persevered. And others had come to join him, and Kerry and his team were making great strides in their translation work. And it looked like they were going to reach some kind of breakthrough. But then one night, the unthinkable happened. A fire broke out in the building where their work and printing press was contained. And the fire consumed almost all their precious manuscripts. It consumed... Ten Bible translations that they'd been working on for years. It burned up a translation of the Ramayana that they were doing. It burned up a a, a Sanskrit dictionary that they were making. It burned up vast quantities of paper and fonts and other vital supplies. And it was, by the morning, all gone. Just a pile of smoking ash. Now, how did Carey react to see his life's work literally go up in smoke? He reported what he called a providence. And he passed rapidly on from the losses that they'd suffered to a list of eight merciful circumstances surrounding the fire. And the one that he wanted to give thanks to God for most of all was that the missionaries had been preserved from discouragement. They weren't discouraged. To carry the disaster of the fire was simply another reminder of an infinitely wise God and of his promises regarding the extension of his kingdom. And he wrote these words. This is actually what he wrote. In one short evening, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. I had lately brought some things to the utmost perfection of which they seemed capable and contemplated the missionary establishment with perhaps too much self-congratulation. The Lord has laid me low that I may look more simply to him. One historian historian of, of that period writes these words, people who insisted on their ultimate insignificance in the light of the grandeur of the divine purpose possessed a unique capacity to withstand immense pressure. They were convinced of their own ultimate insignificance and the grandeur of the divine purpose. And it gave them this great capacity to withstand these immense pressures. Look again with me at verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know that in 
all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now today is the tenth and final message in our series. There's the slide, Newness of Life. We've been in this series since April. And it's, it's about the Christian life. The series has been about the Christian experience. What does it mean to live as a disciple of Jesus, a Christian? What does God intend for us? How should we live? We started out this series with a challenge. You may remember the story of a man, true story, who was living in the south of France who decided to get his leaking roof repaired. He went up into the loft and discovered there in the loft a painting. It was a lost masterpiece by the Italian painter Caravaggio. It had been lost for more than 150 years and it was valued at over 90 million pounds. A life-changing amount of money. And so we asked this question. If you were in possession of something truly life-changing, what would you do about it? If you were in possession of something truly life-changing, what would you do about it? And I would answer for you. You would take steps to seize the benefits. Vigorous steps. But many Christians are like the owners of that house. They're in possession of something that's truly life-changing, potentially. The gospel, the good news of Jesus. But it's up in the loft. And they're living in the basement. And they don't take steps to seize the benefits of the new life that is ours in Jesus. So I challenge you with these statements to ask if this is true of you. I've been a Christian for a while now and I still pretty much believe it, but it just doesn't seem real. My spiritual life is basically a struggle. I don't feel I'm really growing or changing. There's this one sin that I can't get over. Either I can't stop doing it or I can't forgive myself for it. I've grown weary of trying to live for Jesus Christ. Or I am unhappy and I just don't enjoy the Christian life. What do you think? Do you ever hear things like that, friends, Grace Church people? Do do we ever say things like that to ourselves, to each other? Do you ever feel them? 50 years ago, a pastor in London who was also a doctor wrote these words. There are large numbers of people in this unhappy situation. The Christian life seems to them to be a constant problem. And they're always asking the same question. Why can't I get there? Why can't I be like that? And they're cast down. Their souls are cast down and disquieted within them. But, according to the New Testament, it doesn't have to be like that. Because according to the New Testament, being a Christian is about being given new birth. Being given a new life. Being put in possession of something that is truly life-changing. And then taking vigorous steps to seize the benefits. So this whole series... And we're in week 10, the final week, has been about pursuing and identifying that newness of life. Understanding the good news, the gospel, more and more deeply and applying it more and more rigorously to ourselves so that we experience its power in a new and fresh way. Because we don't want to live in the basement. We don't want to live half a Christian life. We want to live a full one. And in this final message... In this final part of Romans chapter 8, I want to talk about insecurity. Insecurity. Because I think this is one of the biggest limiters on the Christian life. Many of us are not secure in our spiritual heart, so we fear. Our lives are not really built on solid foundations, so we are insecure. But a lot of people don't realize this. In fact, you may not even realize that you are insecure. So let me ask you a few questions. 
How often do you check your appearance? How often do you review your performance with someone close after, after the meeting or after the conversation or whatever it is? How was that? Don't you secretly believe that you're not really any good? That you don't really know what you're talking about? That you're weightless? That people will see through you one day, you'll be found out? One person once said to me, sometimes I feel like if I stand in front of a light, the light will shine through me. I just feel I'm so insubstantial. Do you lose sleep because of anxiety? Are you haunted by regrets? How much of your behavior, honestly, how much of your behavior is driven by the desire to make people like you, approve of you, or respect you? Come on, can't you see that we're all insecure? First day of our married life, 15th of August, 1999, Melissa and I visited a church in central London called All Souls Langham Place. A man preached called Rico Tice. And he said during the course of his sermon, we're all insecure. And you know what? I'd never heard a Christian say that before. It was so liberating. We're all insecure. And this is so important to grasp in the Christian church because insecurity means we're not really trusting God. We don't really believe him. We don't really believe that he loves us. We're not really secure in him. And so we feel we have to make up the deficit ourselves. This church historian Richard Lovelace said this, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their righteousness and criticism of other people. See how important it is that we we become secure in Jesus? Because if we don't, we won't be the people that God has called us to be. We won't have in our church the kind of beautiful, uh, gracious, warm, accepting, loving and holy place that we're supposed to be as a church. It's so important. But you know what? There's so many circumstances in life that make you doubt the goodness of God, aren't there? There's so many things in life that make you doubt the goodness of God. Plenty of things to make you wonder, does God really love me? So we need to know just how secure we are in Jesus Christ as a result of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. If we understood it, we would know that we are unshakable, that we are standing on a rock, but we just don't feel it all the time. A couple of months ago, my wife took some of our younger children on an airplane. Two of them, I think it was the first time they'd been on a plane, or certainly the first time they could remember, and it was a very rough takeoff, wasn't it? The plane sort of taxied around for a while and then took off, and it was all very shaky. And a lot of the adults on the plane were terrified. But Ted and Ben were acting as if they were on a roller coaster. <laughs> Whee! Yay! Woo! All the adults are sitting there like this. <laughs> People are rediscovering their religion. Ted and Ben, loving it. Now, the other passengers were not less secure than Ted and Ben. They just had less confidence in the object of their trust. Now, the Apostle Paul knows all about this, and this is why he writes in Romans 8, verse 28, here we are again, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know 
We know it. We might not see it, but we know it. It's a settled conviction based on the gospel. What do we know? Now, notice what, let's be very careful here, what he doesn't say. There was a, a classic, very beautiful, very dignified version of the Bible called the King James Version, uh, which uh, was the major version in this country for, and around the world for many, many years. But the King James Version wasn't very helpful on this verse. It said, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. But if you think about it, all things don't really work together for good. There are plenty of things in your life and mine and in the world that really work together for bad, aren't there? So what was the verse saying? It was a slightly of a mistranslation. Plenty of things work against us. What he does say, back in our translation again, verse 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, God is working for your good if you love him. So no matter what the circumstance, no matter what's going on in your life, your past, present, or future, God is working, even in the very horrible stuff, for your good, somehow in his mysterious and infinitely wise providence. Those of you who know your Bible will remember the story of uh, Jacob and his sons back in the book of Genesis. And how one of the sons was sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers betrayed him, threw him into a pit, and told the dad that he'd been killed by a wild beast. They actually tore up his, his robe and put some blood on it to make it look realistic. He was then rescued by slave traders who took him down to Egypt and sold him into slavery. And there he spent many years struggling and serving faithfully. And there he was betrayed by somebody who should have known better and put in prison. And while he was in prison, he interpreted the dream of the Pharaoh and was raised up to being the CEO of the country. An amazing story. And finally, Joseph was confronted with his brothers many years later, and the brothers didn't even recognize him. He looked like an Egyptian. He even walked like an Egyptian. And when they finally realized who he was, and that he's now the most powerful guy in the, in the country, and they're in front of him, and they were the brothers that sold him, you know, they're all seeing, they're doing the maths, and think, it's time. And Joseph says, you know, uh, God intended it for good. You intended it for evil. But God intended it for good. Even the circumstances of his life, which had been bitter and horrible for many years, God intended it for good and for the saving of many lives. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is totally good. And he's at work in all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, for your good, Christian friend, if you love him. Now, how can Paul be so confident of this? Paul himself has experienced more suffering than many people ever would. In the course of his ministry, he'd been beaten up, rejected, betrayed, shipwrecked, taken into false custody. He'd been beaten, uh, whipped with uh, 39 lashes. He'd been starving, very, very ill. He'd been almost you can any kind of suffering Paul had experienced it and yet he says here he's absolutely confident in all things God is working for the good how can he be so confident how did he reach that kind of conclusion fingers crossed touch wood blind faith no 
gospel reality. Verses 29 to 39 give the foundations for this belief. There are five unbreakable links and there are five unanswerable questions. Five unbreakable links and five unanswerable questions. And for those of you who know how things usually work in this church, you're thinking, this is a ten-point sermon coming up. Don't worry, it's just two points. They happen to have five subheadings each. (laughs) We're going to move at quite a pace. Five unbreakable links that support verse 28. Look with me at verse 29. Four, this is the, the ground. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Five unbreakable links in a golden chain. God foreknew, predestined, called, justified and glorified those who are his people. Firstly, God foreknew them. Now, what does this mean? The basic meaning is that God knows everything before it even happens. God is never taken by surprise. He is, the fancy word is, omniscient, all-knowing. God isn't kind of reacting to events in history. God knows everything before it even happens. He is all-knowing. But in this context, it means more than just God sort of seeing into the future. Because God foreknows all people and all things, yet in this verse... He knows, he foreknows a certain group of people. He foreknows them. There's a deeper sense in which God knows about these people. Now, in the Hebrew language, the verb to know has this sense of a lot more than just knowing data. It carries a sense of a personal relationship, of care and affection. In other words, Christian friend, God foreknew you means that he chose to care for you. He chose to set his great heart of love on you. God foreknew you. Even before you were a twinkle in your father's eye. God foreknew you. Even before you were named. God had loved you. Before you were, took your first steps. He had set his heart on you. And those that he foreknew in that way. That personal, affectionate, caring way. He also predestined. Predestined. This means that God, in a prior way, chose you to follow him. Now, it's true that if you decided to follow Jesus, you did decide freely, and it was your choice, okay? But here we learn something mysterious and deep. It's that even before you made your decision to follow Jesus, there was a prior one. In eternity past, God decided beforehand and chose you. Before the world was made... Before the universe was set in motion, God knew his people and he chose them. This was his sovereign, gracious, and good pleasure. He chose you. He chose you, Christian friend. Now, we in the West sometimes have problems with this. We start to to wrestle with the philosophical implications. What does that mean about free will, determinism? I thought I was an independent agent. I'm not a robot. The Bible says that. How does it all work? Listen to how some Korean, some Korean sex, sex workers in the mid-20th century re- responded to this teaching. A missionary went to Korea in the mid-20th uh, century working among prostitutes. And he found that these women simply could not accept the idea of God extending grace to them because their self-loathing was too great. 
They loathed themselves, and in their culture they were covered in shame. No matter how much the missionaries showed them stories of Jesus' forgiveness or passages about God's love and grace, he got nowhere. Finally, the missionary came up with a radical idea. He decided to talk to these non-Christian Asian prostitutes about predestination. Now, no one denies that there are biblical texts that talk about God predestining, but there's lots of debate on it. But the missionary realized that it might be different in the, in the Eastern world. So he told the prostitutes about a God who is a king. Kings, he said, have a sovereign right to rule and act as they see fit. And they rule. That's just what kings do. And this great divine king chooses to select people out of the human race to serve him simply because it's his sovereign will to do so. Therefore, his people are saved because of his royal will, not because of the quality of their lives or of their choices. Now, this made perfect sense to the women. They had no problem with the idea of authority figures acting in this way. It seemed natural to them. But it also meant that when people were saved, it wasn't because of their virtues or their efforts, but because of the will of God. And they accepted the belief. And that opened up their possibility of understanding grace. They asked the missionary, how can I know if I am chosen? And he answered that if they heard the gospel and they wanted to accept and believe it, this was a sign that the Holy Spirit was already working in their hearts. You see how this idea of being chosen is meant for our comfort and for our good. And encouragement. He chose you. He also called, it says thirdly. Now this kind of follows on logically, doesn't it? If God has set his love on you and chosen you, he also calls. And I love that language because, uh, you know, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God and tried to hide from him in their shame and in their guilt, God went and called, where are you? Perhaps there's three saddest words in the Bible. Where are you? We, we were lost. We were alienated and we needed to be reconciled but here God comes and calls again and it's a call of grace how did he call you through the gospel message when you heard it you came alive to it it gripped you somehow it's like the lights went on and you responded in faith that was God's call to you it was a divine summons that raised you to spiritual life so friends just think for a moment what a privilege we have to share the good news with people you can be an ambassador of the great king, like a herald, to bring good news of God's call to them. God's foreknown, he's predestined, he's called, and he also justified. Now, Paul has already said a lot about this in the earlier part of the book. We've learned that we were unable to justify ourselves and make ourselves right. Our sins were deeper than the sea. Our good deeds, even the best of them, were built on selfish motives. But Jesus freely took our penalty on himself. The righteous one took our place. And at the cross, a great exchange took place. He took our place and became our substitute. The one who was righteous became sin so that we could walk away righteous. And this new status that we enjoy comes by grace, through faith alone. Not one deed or action can you do to add to what Jesus has already accomplished and given to you freely. 
those God foreknew and predestined and called, he also justified. And then the fifth link in the chain is that he glorified. Now glory is the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of God. God is the one supremely valuable, precious, and weighty being in the universe. And here the glory of God is applied to God's people so that we too enjoy his glory and share in it in the future world to come. The gospel hope, as we've heard a couple of weeks ago, is of a new creation, a new world in which we share in God's glory. Just see how God is moving in your life. He's unstoppable. He's irresistible. Your plans may well fail. Your plans are often thwarted. Some of your plans are completely unworkable. But God's plans are always fulfilled. Nothing can stand in his way. Those who he foreknew, he predestined. And those who he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. He's already qualified you to share in the inheritance. Each step of this five-part chain is locked into the others, and it's an unbreakable chain. So, Paul asks in verse 31, what should we say in response to this? What then should we say in response to these things, things like that? And his answer is to give us five unanswerable questions. So we've gone from the five unbreakable elements or links of a chain to the five unanswerable questions, which are ammunition in the fight against insecurity. These are bullets, arrows in the fight against insecurity. Take these questions to heart and they will drive insecurity out. Use them as a challenge to deal with your fears. Here are the five questions. One, if God is for us, who can be against us? Two, if God gave his son for us, won't he give us all things? Three, who can bring any charge against us? Four, who can condemn us? And five, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Five unanswerable questions. One, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul doesn't say, who could be against us? Because he knows fine well, lots of people can be against you. Lots of situations can be against you. Your your own self can be against you. He's experienced it. He knows it. It's one of the things that makes us fearful. It's one of the things that makes us insecure. Is that there's plenty of things stacked against us. How can we keep our heads above the water in life? His point is this. If God is for you, if God is on your side, then you are victorious. You will win. If God gave his son for us, verse 32, won't he give us all things? Paul says, now come just think about it. Think about what God has already given you. He already gave his son. In fact, the language he uses, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now this really is extraordinary. God has already given you his very best. He's already made the most costly sacrifice You know that the sacrifice of Jesus was so costly that Jesus himself, in agony, prayed, Lord, if it's your will, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Even so, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ went to the cross willingly and strongly for you. God the Father laid your iniquity and punishment on him. He's already done all of that. So having done that, is he going to let you down? Again, he deals with our insecurity. We look inside. We see how much we fail God. We see how much we still sin. We see how poor our love for him is, how 
pathetic our lives are, and we're full of doubt. Does God really love me? And Paul says, ask the question. If God gave his son for me, won't he give me all things? Won't he deal with the rest? Third question, who can bring any charge against us? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now with this question, we're kind of imagining that we're in a law court, and you're there, and you're in the dock, and there the judge comes in with the wig on, and everybody's, your family and your friends and the press are there, a little bit like this room, and somebody comes in, uh, with the file of all the things you've done wrong and every thought, word and deed. How big would the file be? <laughs> Maybe they'd be bringing in a wheelbarrow or a truck and they're laying all this evidence there of all the things that Seb has done wrong. And there it all is. And then the prosecution stands and Seb thinks, I'm done for. I'm picking him because he's a particularly sinful person, by the way. <laughs> The prosecution stands to clear his throat <clears throat> to bring the case against Seb Goodison. But before he can even speak, <laughs> the judge bangs the gavel. Silence, he says. Case dismissed. Seb is found innocent. You may go free. And the evidence is taken away and burned. Here's the verse again. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies it's a reflection on the gospel again. Once God has forgiven you, once you've been declared righteous, there is nothing more to be said. No one can accuse you. But verse 34 pushes a bit further into it. Who then is the one who condemns? Who does accuse us? And you know, even though we know we're, we're acquitted and forgiven by God, we do still feel condemned at times. In fact, we condemn ourselves. You might think, well, you know, there's plenty about me to condemn still. But here he rubs it in a bit more. He says, no, no, Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. It reminds us of the fact that Jesus Christ has died to take away our penalty and our sin. And he's risen from the dead, which means that God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf and made him the Messiah and raised him up to the place of authority, as we heard last week, where Jesus now reigns as saviour and sovereign. And he speaks to God the Father a gracious word on your behalf. Who could condemn you? Nobody. So finally, the final question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And here at this point, Paul just soars. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see what he's saying? God is speaking to you through this passage and saying, trust me. Stop all your striving and worrying and working and all your insecurity. Put it to one side. Lay your burdens on him and trust him. Trust him. 
And maybe there's one person here today who's been struggling and wrestling with whether they really want to be a Christian. And you've been exploring and learning and thinking and studying, and it's great that you're here. I'm so glad you're here. But maybe today is the day where you actually believe God does love you and invites you and calls you in to belong to him. So will you follow him today? Will you follow him today? And if you're going to do that, I would love to talk with you and pray with you after this meeting. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ if you're one of his. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Five unbreakable links. Five unanswerable questions. How can we have such confidence? Such assurance? Walk in newness of life? By believing the gospel. By walking with Jesus in light of it every day. By starting the day saying, I am accepted. I am free. I am not alone. And I am secure. And asking the Holy Spirit to help you in that day's burdens and struggles. Many of you know the story of Horatio and Anna Spafford. Horatio was a prominent lawyer in America and he was a Christian man. And the family decided they would take a holiday in Europe. So Horatio, who was finishing up some business, sent Anna and their four daughters on ahead to sail to Europe. But on November 22, 1873, whilst crossing the Atlantic, the ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel and 226 people lost their lives. All four of Spafford's daughters were drowned. Anna survived the tragedy. And on, on arriving in England, she sent a telegram to Stafford, Spafford, beginning with these words, saved alone. Spafford then sailed to England, joined his wife, and as it, on, en route, he went over the location of his daughter's deaths. And he wrote these words on the journey, which I think many of you know. Going over the uh, ocean waves and thinking about his loss, he was able to reflect the realities of Romans 8, 28. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pain shall be mine. For in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. What then should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us?
Father in heaven, forgive us, our, our faith is so weak. We're so easily overwhelmed by circumstances, by the distractions and the, the difficulties of life. Sometimes we just move around from one day to the next, hardly thinking of you. Lord, speak to us now in accents loud and clear and stir up faith in our hearts so that we would walk in newness of life. Father, I pray for everyone here. Thank you that they're in this room. Would you please do a work in us, renew us by your Holy Spirit. And would you please draw somebody today into saving faith and into your kingdom. For your glory, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.